Good morning, everybody. Good to see you all. I don't know why I put that down. I need a drink. Uh, we are going to be continuing our narrative through Genesis this morning. Uh, but I actually, I did not realize today that was, was Yom Kippur. I'm really glad Matt brought that up. Um, it's a remarkable thing, the idea of atonement. Uh, when we think about it, there was a day that God made sure that anything that got left undone was taken care of. Um, to consider that within the law itself, we can look at we can look at the Old Testament. We can see the way God interacted with people. We can think of Him as angry. And we can think of the law as harsh and difficult. But built into the law is the assumption of failure. Built into the law is there a system. That's um, when you read about the guilt offerings, when it says, if any of the men do any of the things in which they sin against one another, they shall do this when they are made aware of their guilt. There's an assumption that people aren't going to be able to do it all. But God isn't just going to strike people down. He's not just going to eliminate them because they failed. He's giving them an opportunity to return. There's always an opportunity to return. God takes no pleasure in the death of anyone. He desires life. He desires us to be with him. And he knows that we can't meet his standard. But he's never going to lower that standard simply because we can't meet it. But he wants us to know and he wants us to seek after him and he wants us to try to become better than who we were day after day and to understand his goodness and his love towards us. And this is an amazing, amazing God we serve. And he has been consistent throughout all scripture and his desires for humanity. As we continue through this, we see that God always has a plan and it's not always an easy one. Last week, we we're talking about looking at the big picture while still living day by day. And today we're going to see a, resolu a resolution to the famine that's in the land. The thing that kind of spurred all of this last section to happen, Joseph rising to power, his reuniting with his family. And we're going to finally get some resolution to that element of this today. And there's a couple of very cliche phrases that are ever so true in this, that idea of it's always darkest before the dawn, it's going to get worse before it gets better, all those things we see within this. And what's interesting with this chapter, we're going to see an inversion of chapter 39. Chapter 39 is when Joseph is in Potiphar's house. He's been sold as a slave. He gets framed for something he never did, and he ends up getting thrown in jail. He goes down, 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 to eventually being literally not, in, not the pit that his brothers threw him into, but the pit that is now the jail, the prison that he is in. He can't get any lower than he was, and Egypt has drug him down, down, down. And in this chapter, Joseph is now the one in power. He's the one who holds everything in his hand, and Egypt is going to fall down, 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 until they are so desperate just to survive, it could not get any lower. And the last cliche phrase I want to talk about today is this idea of power. And so the phrase goes, power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Joseph right now has absolute power. 
Anything he wants happens. He could take all of his hurt, all of his frustrations, all of his pains, and he could take it out on everybody. He could take absolute advantage over the entire land. He has absolute power. And that kind of thing does go to people's heads. We see it happen time and time and time again. And it's a sad thing. We see it culturally. We see people that go into politics and they've got such high hopes, they're going to make amazing changes, and they get jaded by what they find. And they have to play the system, and there's corruption that ensues, and there's deals, and there's so much, the phrasing in our culture is so much pork filled in all of our laws because of compromise and corruption as opposed to people standing by their values and not bending to the whim of the masses. However, here, that changes if you have a different perspective. When we look at Joseph, Joseph understands he did not get here on his own. He did not get there by his own wiles, by his own wits, by his own ingenuity, by his family. He didn't get here by money. He got here by the will of God. And he fully understands it was only by God's will that put him in this place. And God has put him here to preserve life. That's his focus. That's his purpose. He is not here to serve man. He's not here to please anybody. He is here to fulfill the will of God that he has put him on this path. And so when he finds himself in these desperate times and this opportunities for his own advancement, that is not what we will see in here. There's been a lot of uh, questions in this chapter over time where it, it appears that Joseph is taking advantage of the people, but I'm going to dissuade you of that today. I'm going to talk about contextually what's going on here and what Joseph gave back to these people. This chapter I entitled at the very beginning, Desperate Times, I would like to rename it, Giving People Dignity. And we'll break that down as we go. Genesis 47, so Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, my father and my brothers with their flocks and herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, as our fathers were. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, Put them in charge of my livestock. And it's that last line there that just really stood out to me this time as I read through it. It just rang true of what's going on here in that everyone works, everyone contributes. They came, they're beggars. They have nothing of their own. They came into this land, they're looking for survival. But there's a difference between being given something to eat and buying something to eat yourself. There are always exceptions, but by and large, everyone wants to be able to pay their own way. 
Everyone wants to be able to provide for themselves. They want to be able to provide their families. They would rather work and be able to pay their own bills than have someone pay it for them. There are, of course, exceptions. But if you ask the greater majority of the population, they want to be able to contribute. They don't want to be a burden on anyone else. They want to be able to provide. They want to be able to work. And every now and then, someone finds themselves in a position when they can't manage. And what do we do then? In this case, they brought him to the land. They're at the mercy of their brother. They're going to die without him giving them anything. And they've settled in the land and they say, hey, we're going to provide for you. But you know what? We're going to have you watch the royal livestock. Coincidentally, you all have this profession already. There were probably people in the land that could do this already. But he put them in charge of all of this so that they could make sure that they earned their keep. Out of 2 Thessalonians 3, it says, for, every, for even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. It's more than just punishing people for being lazy. Out of Leviticus 23, 22, it says, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. What these passages are talking about is when someone eats and it's just been given to them, they lack something in it. However, if you've had to work for it, if you've had to go out into the field and you had to collect the harvest yourself and you had to go to the threshing floor and you had to beat the wheat and you had to grind it yourself and you had to bake the bread, when you sit down to the table, you are grateful. You're grateful for this meal. You're grateful that you have it. You're grateful that you had the opportunity to provide something for your family. You have dignity and you have ownership over it as the things you're doing. There isn't this idea of entitlement. There isn't this idea of expectation. But there's still a measure that we help provide for those that aren't going to be able to provide themselves. When we look at that passage of Leviticus, this is one of their social justice laws, saying, hey, when you go through the field, don't cut it all down, and you're going to drop stuff. Don't pick it up. It didn't say, take all of that and go hand it to the poor. No, it said, allow them the opportunity to come and work and have a meal. Allow them some dignity as they continue through desperate times. And so this is what he's allowed his brothers and his family. He's allowed them to maintain some dignity. You two are going to work. You're going to take care of these livestock. And this has actually become very important later in our chapter. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. So first we see that Joseph blesses Pharaoh. 
which is interesting because Pharaoh's the one in power. Pharaoh's the one in charge. He has all the authority. And the one who has the greater authority is always the one who blesses. We see that within families. The father blesses the children, not the other way around. But there are different kinds of authority. There's familial authority, who's going to be the highest in the family, usually the father, and eventually that will pass on normally to the firstborn son. You have workplace authority, where while you're there, you're going to answer to the person who's in charge, and when you leave, they're no longer an authority to you. You have governmental authority, whether the king or the prince or the governor or whoever's in charge, they make the laws, they rule the land, they protect what you have given authority over to them. But there's a different kind of authority, the authority that's coming into place here. There's spiritual authority. The one who speaks on behalf of God. Now, we have a great high priest, Jesus. We only answer to him now as our spiritual authority. Everyone can go before Jesus. Everyone can go to the throne of grace. Everyone here can now speak to God. There's no intermediaries other than him anymore. But that wasn't always the case. When we go back to Abraham, Abraham was a great prophet, but he wasn't the highest spiritual authority. He himself was blessed by, um, not Abimelech, what's the other, Melchizedek, Melchizedek. another Ek. Um, (laughs) Blessed by Melchizedek, the high priest of God, most high. After he won a great battle, Melchizedek comes out, he blesses Abraham, and Abraham ties to Melchizedek because he is the higher spiritual authority. When Abraham meets Abimelech, who's simply a king, Abimelech defers to Abraham, and Abraham blesses him. And now in this case, Jacob is the highest spiritual authority here, and he is blessing Pharaoh. And he says a very interesting thing here at the end of it. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And I consider that. It seemed very dour, very just woe is me, very Eeyore. Um, but I considered Jacob's life. And I went back and I made a timeline from the years zero to 77. Jacob's family was moved around from place to place, being chased off, fighting to survive. His father disregarded him as not worth anything compared to his brother. And his father had intended to give him nothing. And so at the age of 77, him and his mother plotted a, pl- hashed a little plan in order to get something from his father at the expense of his brother. It worked, and then he had to flee for his life. So he fled from home at the age of 77. It's funny when we look at the timelines. <laughs> Everyone thinks of him as a young man. He is not. Then he goes up. He finds Uncle Laban. Everything looks good, but Uncle Laban is a swindler. So at the age of 84, after he's worked for seven long years, and he thinks he's going to have the wife he's always dreamed of, he is cheated out of that wife and his own foolishness. And how do you not recognize that that's not the person you're supposed to marry? And finds out he wakes up next to Leah, her sister. He goes, oh, you're going to have to marry them both and work for me another seven years. So then during that time, he deals with a lot of infighting between his wives because then they've started adding more wives to this and competing with each other. Who's going to have the most kids? Imagine that household, four wives competing or having the most kids, and you're the one expected to provide all that. 
After that 14 years is done, they're ready to go home, but they don't have anything. And so him and Laban strike up a deal on what he's going to make his wages. And Laban tries to cheat him again and again and again and again and again for the next six years. And finally, they flee that situation. They're headed down. And then they have the realization, that's right. We were up here for a reason. My brother's down there who wanted me dead. So as they march back home, he winds up having this incredibly difficult evening at Penuel at the age of 97. That's when he fights with God all night long and he knocks his hip out of socket. At the age of 97. He meets his brother that ends up going way better than he had anticipated it would. They think, okay, we might have some peace for a little while. They go and settle and check him for a little bit. His daughter is defiled. His sons wipe out an entire town. They're fleeing for their life. The only reason they survived is that God put the fear of them in all the people of the land. From the age of 97 to 108 plus, Rachel dies in childbirth. Reuben has an affair with Billah. Joseph is presumed dead and Judah wanders away from the family. And then a famine strikes the land. Few and evil have been the days and the years of my life. Jacob hasn't had an easy life. And yet here they are. There's been no lasting peace. But the reality is, and the thing that he constantly recognizes and says to us at this point, that God has been with me through it all. Through it all, God is with me all the days of my sojourning. Life isn't always easy. It's not promised to be easy. It's probably not going to be easy. There will be difficulties. There will be sorrows. There will be pains. There will be struggles. There will be frustrations. There will be infighting. There will be things that you can't prevent, but they still happen. But God is with you. And he's going to carry you through. And he will never forsake you. But eventually we get to this pot, spot or a lot of times where we're headed towards a famine, where this isn't just affecting you, it's affecting everybody. It's drastic. It's going to, this could just wipe out everything. And this is what they're in. And this is what they're headed towards. It says, now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land in Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. So we've got a map. I need to break down what's going on here. I, I need us to understand the severity of what's happening here. Because when they say famine, we just think lack of food. But we have to ask the deeper question, why is there a lack of food? How is produce grown in these regions? Well, if we look at Egypt, it's green, it's lush, it's beautiful, and it all has to do with the Nile. The Nile is life. When you look at Canaan, it's not nearly as green and lush and beautiful, is it? They are fed differently. In the land of Egypt, the, the Nile runs down. It's the longest river in the world. It starts in Central Africa, and it's fed by extremely heavy rainfall in the autumn. It does not really rain here. Hardly ever. You might get a little coastal rain. All of this is floodplains from the Nile Delta. So the Nile every year in the autumn will overflow and all of this silt will be carried down to it and it replenishes the soil. Ask any good farmer, if you don't replenish the soil, the soil turns to dust. I had a really good conversation with Cass about that, about replenishing the soil. 
and what that takes year after year after year. And this is how it lives. This is how it thrives in this land. It's different up here in Canaan. Up in Canaan, there's also very little rain. It's fed by aquifers, underground water tables that flow up from the mountainous regions down into this area. That's why they go from well to well to well. Water is life. The well is life. Now, why am I telling you all this? What happens when there's not a lot of rain anymore? We have drought. We're familiar with that. We live in California. There's a drought. But how does that affect things? Well, if the Nile is life and it needs to overflow every year to keep everything going, when you have less water and that stops, what happens to the land? It dries up. And it starts to look like this. And so what happens if that hap after one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, seven years of famine before the end of this. So not only does it dry up, what we see in this region, they call them distributaries. The Nile breaks up into about five different branches right here. And if you have less water, it branches out less to where you will only have perhaps one or two distributaries. And my particular guess is the one right here still gets fed because that's Goshen. That's the only spot that can still manage livestock in this whole region. But what does that have to do with Canaan? Well, when you have less water falling, those water tables get lower and lower and lower and lower. And it doesn't matter if you have a 100-foot well if the water table is 120 feet down. And so if there's no water to be had, there's nothing to feed the livestock with, there's nothing to water the ground with, everything dries up year after year after year after year. It's desperate. They can't keep anything alive. It's not that there isn't any rain or any food, it's just so little that nothing's going to survive. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, give your livestock and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. This is a cost that is actually a blessing. Just as a real quick thing for you, the average horse eats about 20 pounds of food a day. A cow will consume about 24 pounds of food a day. A big sheep will eat between 9 to 10 pounds a day. An oxen, 30 pounds a day. A donkey will eat about 7 pounds a day. And a pig will consume between 5 and 7 pounds each day. A person needs 3 to 4. They cannot afford to keep these animals alive. 
what do you do if you can't afford to keep an animal alive and it's a famine? You eat it. You eat the animal. I've said it a few different times over the weeks. These animals are worth far more alive than dead. When you're in a famine, you're not thinking about that. In a famine, you're hungry. We eat the animal. And it's understandable to be ate the animal. But it's worth more alive and a dead than dead. These animals bring clothing, they're necessary for farming, and they're necessary for freight in their region. They help make the economy go round. Without them, it will be so desperate for them to be able to get back on their feet as a nation. It will drive them back hundreds and hundreds of years. So what does Joseph do? He takes all the livestock so that they don't have to work on keeping them alive, and takes it as payment, and he feeds people with the food that he has. If only he had people to take care of all these livestock. Oh, he does. He set an entire family of shepherds that he brought down from Canaan, whose sole profession is to take care of livestock, and they've already been set in charge of this. And they're in the one place in the land that you can still take take care of livestock, because they're going to need them. And so they took them to care for them for the people until this is done. And when the year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, we will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left inside of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. There's only reason he would give, one reason he would be giving them seed to sow the land. The famine has ended. The drought has ended. There's going to be water. We've made it through the seven years, and they have nothing at the end of it, it would seem. And so in their desperation, simply to survive beyond it, because even if you've made it through and the rains have come, if you have nothing to sow the land, there's still no food. They still have to survive one more year to get going again. And at the harvest, you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and food for yourselves and your households and your food for your little ones. And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh. So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. So this particular area has been seen as, wow, Joseph really took advantage of the situation and enslaved the whole land of Egypt. But I want to talk about what's going on here. When we say slavery, we usually think of two different things, either debt slavery or chattel slavery. Debt slavery is when someone sells you themselves to you for a certain period of time to pay a debt. It's something we saw very common within Israel, they would sell themselves into the year of Jubilee, and then they would be freed, and they'd go about their lives. They're paying off a debt. They actually have quite a few rights. They can make some income. 
but that's debt slavery. Then there's chattel slavery, when chattel, which sounds very much like cattle, and it's just that. You are property. You're like a lamp or a table or a cow. You are someone's property. You have no rights. They can do with you as they wish. You are the lowest of the low. They consider these people subhuman. This is what we most commonly think of when we think about slavery. And neither one of those things is what Joseph is doing here. What Joseph has done is he's given them dignity. I'm going to tell you why. He's allowed all of these people to remain on their land, to farm their land, and he's kept all the livestock necessary for tending to the land. And all that he's required of them is a 20% tax, which they were paying at the beginning of the famine. All he did was make it permanent. So in this, he's convinced all the people that they paid for this. But at the end of it, their condition is the exact same as it started at the end. He's taken nothing from them. But he did so in such a way to give everybody in the land dignity. Everyone's going to pay their way. Everyone's going to work. Everyone's still going to be provided for. And we're going to come out of this the same as we began. And we're going to push on forward together. And the economy will remain. There's different ways we can approach a problem. And what Joseph has done here is masterful. You don't take advantage of people in their desperation. At Leviticus 25, it says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the end of the year of the Jubilee. He made sure the people survived. It was desperate times, but they had everything they needed when they came out of it. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. So he asked Joseph to make the solemn oath. Scripture actually encourages us to not make oaths. We read out of Ecclesiastes by Solomon, the wisest man that has ever lived. He said, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. If you do make an oath, if you do swear by God, just take care of it right away. Don't dally about it. Don't say, I'll get to it. Just be done with it. You should have never done that in the first place. Let your words be few. And Jesus elaborates on this out of Matthew 5. He says, again, you have heard 
that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. He's referencing this passage I just read. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, and do not take an oath by, the, by your head. You can't make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply, yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. And the heart of the matter is to simply be a person of integrity. When you say yes, people should believe that you will put everything you can into accomplishing that. And when you say no, it should mean no. Be people of integrity. So what can we learn when we look at this chapter? What can we learn when we look at these desperate times and how we can approach things? And there's two things. The first of which is that desperate times will bring the value of things into sharp contrast. When we talk about hunger, most everything stops mattering. Maybe some of you have been at the point of starvation. Many of you have just been hungry. And I think there's probably more than just me in the crowd that understands what it's like to be hangry. <laughs> it's a condition. I'm a survivor. Um, is that when you become hungry, nothing else seems to matter. You become irritable. You become short with people. And it doesn't, nothing matters. I just need to eat. And it's a lesson that the people around us, unfortunately, have to learn. My wife has learned that snacks are not optional. <laughs> and that's just mild hunger compared to we're starving. We're starving to death. When things, what things actually begin to really matter. Out of Luke 12, it says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man who made me a judge or an arbiter over you. And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Setting food aside, when health, security, financial stability, housing, any of these things are compromised, the worry over the stuff or the personal dramas going on in your life begin to seem really, really petty because they really, really are. When something that really matters is compromised, you don't care what he said or she said. You don't care that someone was late. You're happy they're there, they're helping. When you have a parent is dying, you don't care that you're having an argument with your sister, you're just glad that she's there. She's able to help take care of the things. And if someone is getting upset that, about that, you snap at them to stop it. It's not important. When things are good, we get so caught up in the unimportant. We often need to have our perspective shifted back to where it belongs and what's really actually important and what we allow ourselves to get caught up in needs to be put back 
where it belongs. We need to have a realignment of proper perspective. And the second thing is this, how we respond when we have the power to save or make a difference in someone's life. And within that, every single one of us has a responsibility, a God-ordained responsibility towards our fellow man. At Leviticus 25, it says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him f your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. We should not be looking at other people's misfortunes as our opportunity for gain. We should simply be looking at the people around us and trying to see how do I make sure that they make it through this and help them get back onto their feet. Now there's a difference between often giving something to somebody that they want and giving them something that they need. What's important is that we don't withhold what they need because we don't want to give them what they want. And we think we're teaching them a lesson. There's still the basics that people need. When someone's at a bad spot and they're down and they're out and maybe they're lazy, I know we have a lot of people in our lives that tend to be lazy. They don't want to work. They want to blame other people for their problems. But in that times, they still need encouragement. They still need perspective. They oftentimes still need to know that your relationship isn't bent on this. And sometimes people find themselves also in that position and they're homeless and they can't pay the electric bill. They can't put food in the fridge. How do we help them then? We don't necessarily give them what they want and just do everything for them, but we help them with what they need. Because the difficulty is that complacency and self-absorption do not reflect the character of God. We live in such a time that it's so easy to just go home, close the door, and not return the phone call. It's complacency. I really don't want to deal with that right now. I'm going to be on the phone with them for two hours. They're just going to tell me about all of their problems. Again, it's never positive, and I just, I just don't want to do it. And I, I understand. But that cannot become our norm. Every now and then, we, we don't have the emotional capacity ourselves to answer the phone, and it's best that we don't. That can't become every day. We can't just write that person off and say, yeah, I'm, I've, I've heard it long enough. We must always return to what God said to us, what he said to Peter. How many times would you like to be forgiven? Seven times? Or perpetually? So often we find our place in the, I've forgiven them seven times, it was more than enough. we must reflect back. Is that how we wanted to be treated by God above? Because that's what he's called us to. He's called us to his standard. It's not always easy to meet his standard. We're going to fail his standard, but he still called us to that standard. 
And I always consider what Jesus said to us out of Matthew 25 with this, in those difficult times when I really don't want to. It says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. It does not take a lot to afford someone some dignity in the difficult time in their life. But it sure does mean a lot to that person and to God that you did so. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to learn from your word, to learn from the difficult things of the past, Lord. We just ask you to give us your heart that you have for humanity, for people, for the unlovely in our lives, Lord. We just pray that we can see them as you see them and has the same grace that you have for us, that we have for them, Lord. That we can look upon every other person on this planet and see that they are your child. Lord, we just help. We ask that you help us when we don't want to help anymore, Lord. We ask you, ask you to give us strength and encouragement and to bolster us up so that we can do the same for others. We thank you for your grace, for your mercy, for your forgiveness, for your love in our lives, Lord. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with us?